When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adjust Your Tracking and all the Playlist podcasts are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Mubi's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. Playlist listeners are el- eligible for a special 30-day free trial. Regular people only receive seven free days. So visit mubi.com slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. Now showing on Mubi, their current highlights include Austrian film from Michael Glowager, Contact High, a 420-appropriate uh, comedy, The Valley Below, a Canadian film from Kyle Thomas, and the end of their, forgive me for murdering this name, uh, Walerian Borowiczyk's uh, French uh, uh, art sex films. Uh, the end. The last title that they're showing on movie is Love Rights. So those are just some of the current highlights now showing on movie, but make sure to check out their stuff uh, on the regular because they switch it up every day. And we thank Mubi for their sponsorship of this podcast and all the other playlist podcasts. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, uh, uh, I was listening to one of our playlist podcasts uh, just the other day here, and I saw that uh, you were moonlighting on that one with with uh, some of our other podcast hosts, Ryan Oliver and, and Kimber Myers. You were talking about uh, the fate of the Furious. Is that right? That's true. The 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 meathead, the the sincere, <laughs> sweet, endearing meathead sort of legacy of those movies and i have not seen at the time of the recording i had not seen the latest one which uh my co-hosts had and they they sort of begrudgingly decided to take turns trying to either encourage me not to see it or encourage me to see it (laughs) and uh haven't seen it yet yeah yeah. this is a few days (laughs) down the line and um you know i I still I, i feel like i've seen it even though i haven't seen it yeah, you know I mean? that's kind of those movies. That's where, I mean, y- you've liked them historically much more than me. And I've always just felt like, what's the fucking difference from one to the next? I mean, I guess this new one doesn't have Paul Walker. And other than that, you know? Yeah. Charlize yeah, Theron, she's in it. <laughs> that's true. She. That, that's what we brought up on, on the actual podcast was that it was like there was something just so... like despite her being great, there was something kind of lazy about drawing the parallels. Like she's in the other car movie. Let's put her in this car movie because she's good with cars. Like, Oh, okay guys. Like what? Why? (laughs) Yeah. That you, you had a similar line on the podcast that made me giggle. (laughs) So yeah, that was a callback. (laughs) I like, I like the Von Oppenisms like that. They always make me uh, put a smile on my face. So yeah, well, it was nice to hear you on another podcast. You know, I'm glad to have you uh, back on AYT and, and uh, you know, for us to dive into another episode. So uh, I think we should do it. And I just wanted to start with a few things here I wanted to mention, but just generally stuff that uh, I've been excited about lately to varying degrees. 
um, that I've seen. We've been using the top of the show here lately to get into just smaller things we want to recommend or, you know, stuff that we're excited about or, or interested in. And, um, you know, a few things actually, uh, I, I, I believe it was the last episode I lamented in opening with a, a talk of like repertory cinema and how that's going to, you know, how that's changing and evolving so much and where it goes. And I was kind of left underwhelmed by a recent experience of a, a, a festival we did at my theater that kind of <laughs> underperformed, but we are showing, uh, at least for one more week at my theater, the the restoration of Donnie Darko. And I got to say, it's been heartening to see people, you know, it's not doing amazing, but it did way better theatrically than I thought it would have been for a movie that's been out forever and is a cult, uh, a beloved cult uh, film, uh, one of my favorite movies straight up. And um, so, yeah, it was just nice to see people coming to see that at the theater, but also reminding myself of like why I love that movie in the first place. And for me, Donnie Darko really holds up. So it's been, that's been kind of nice. Um, yeah. Did it come to LA at all for you? Yeah. Yeah. It played for, I think two weeks with like Richard Kelly making appearances at, you know, like several of the screenings. And like, I, I don't know, like this is like, you know, it's going to be 16 years now. I know it's celebrating the 15 year anniversary of that movie, but um, that like that, that's long enough ago but it still feels not like not far away. Like that movie wasn't, doesn't feel that far away in sort of my, my heart and memory of it. Yeah. And it just feels like what happened with that movie in terms of it kind of like having a shaky start, no one really checking for it. And then through word of mouth, it catching on like that just feels like that's not possible anymore. Like, and even with stuff, you know, uh, potentially living, for however long it's going to live on streaming sites and whatnot, like you know, you you'll have access to it, so it could live on, and word of mouth could be beneficial for it. It just doesn't seem to have that sense of like spark that gets people out and excited about it the way in that era it was still possible, you know. Mm-hmm. Like and especially in Portland, where I saw that movie initially several times when it came out, it like. It really it played for like almost a year in Portland because it yeah. was like kept hanging hanging on in kind of like revival houses like the Laurelhurst and Cinemagic and stuff like that. And then by the time they released the director's cut, I think in two thousand three, uh, I remember going to see a, see it at Cinema Twenty One, and the line was like all the way down the block, like around the corner, and nice. it was that was just that was an exciting time. Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> for the director's cut and showing the theatrical version at cinema 21 currently but i know that both are circulating in terms of their restoration yeah they are and we we had the choice and i voted uh i I lobbied very hard for the theatrical version which i i i've only watched that director's cut once and i was very excited to get to it when it did come out and who boy it's uh to me it was like the beginning of not the end of richard kelly by any means i'd hate to to end his career prematurely for him or anything, or even to throw, float that idea out there. But I think it was a sign of like the indulgence and the not being able to control all of his ideas or hone those ideas. Um, it was a sign of what would come with stuff like Southland Tales and the box. Um, so, you know, uh, Southland Tales, we even brought up uh, in like the fall last year on the podcast, we kind of revisited that and Donnie Darko and uh, yeah, still, you know, that movie got, has its cult fans, but uh, I, I still find much to uh, 
much to be uh, left desired with Southland Tales. So yeah, uh, theatrical cut all the way for Donnie Darko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, it's been heartening to see. Um, and then uh, just recently, I caught uh, James Gray's latest film, The Lost City of Z. And uh, I've I'm sort of hot and cold on this director, but I just wanted to put the movie out there, shout it out as um, if anything else. I was impressed by this movie in terms of like, there just aren't movies like this being made anymore. And James Gray feels like uh, he's in a similar wavelength to you and I, where he, he wants to kind of recapture the the glory of like films of the seventies and Mm -hmm. lost city of Z very much feels like a a lost seventies movie. So um, I I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was like awesome. I was really anticipating because I love a good, uh, uh, a movie about like going into a, inhospitable place like the jungle and an adventure type of story i've, I've really exactly <laughs> just like congo exactly <laughs> um i was thinking more like the reverend the revenant and embrace of the serpent you know like my favorite movies from the last few years but uh yeah the, pour one out for congo what the hell um but yeah uh lost city of z if nothing else i think like check this movie out in the theater if you can because uh there just aren't many filmmakers if any making making stuff like this and i think um you know that if that if anything else is reason to check it out it's a it's a nice little movie they don't make them like that anymore joe yeah i think he was uh <clears throat> interviewed on brett easton ellis's podcast allison's <laughs> <laughs> brett easton ellis's podcast I, I feel like a few years ago when the immigrant came out and he was just talking about like the process of getting funding for the types of movies that like you're saying, like just don't exist by and large and certainly don't exist on the scale that they once did. And so like trying to like, you know, carve them out sort of in the, in the image and the honor of what they're paying tribute to is harder and harder to to do because they just don't have the means and the resources anymore. So they, they're not measuring up. They're sort of like a, a thoughtful and well-intentioned homage, but they just don't sort of like hold, hold the same kind of like stature as the things that they're paying tribute to. But I think that from the look of this movie, which I haven't had a chance to see yet, like it looks like it's a, it's a quality movie and he's like a, a real like craftsman in terms of like creating these, like these worlds and these like stories that we don't see enough of. And like too often, you and I are kind of arguing on behalf of movies that like these types of movies don't exist. And while this one isn't that good, like we still want these movies to exist. And so like when someone does make one and, you know, critics are really kind of like championing this one and they're just like, it's really good. It's one of the better movies of the year. Please see it. No one's really seeing it, you know, like, and it's, it's already getting like, you know, a limited enough run, you know, like in terms of like it it opened in Los Angeles, I think last week, Mm -hmm. It's an Amazon movie, so like they're 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 sticking to kind of like putting movies out in the theater first, and then they'll sort of live, you know, streaming wise on Prime Instant Video eventually. Um, but like they they value the theatrical experience, and you know, I mean, hopefully they're 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 still making enough of a you know they're they're making enough to sustain their ventures in that regard because i think it's important that these movies continue to live and it doesn't get so aggressively homogenized in in the theatrical experience anymore oh my god that's that's the thing i appreciated the most about lost city of z is it's so atypical of the way narrative movies play out these days where it has like five or six acts it it 
it moves at a pace that I actually found very refreshing in how much time it took. It, t- it takes its time to really dole out the story. And I think uh, like if, if any Disney filmmakers, anybody making something for Marvel or Star Wars, any, any big studio filmmakers or producers looked at this thing, there's so much that they would want to take out of it, but that would be the soul of the movie. So I love that in its form that it's in, that it, that it exists in theaters and it, it looks beautiful. It's a big movie. It's a big feeling movie, even though it was pro- probably, you know, as tightly budgeted as anything. Um, James Gray historically has to really, you know, fight, uh, hard to get any budget for his movies, but, um, whatever he got the the money's on screen and it, it certainly is, uh, I got swept away in it while also not being completely head over heels for it. It's, it's the kind of thing that I want to watch again because, I might enjoy it much more on a revisit. It, it has a lot that I think you could take away from it, seeing it again and again. So, yeah, you know, I I, I doubt it's going to do very well theatrically for all the reasons I'm kind of praising it, but uh, I, they need to exist, and I, I do hope it finds enough of an audience out there. It's uh, I, I've really come around lately on James Gray because I thought The Immigrant, the movie you just cited, uh, his last one was great. Like, that one really, really fantastic. So, a hearty recommendation for Lost City of Z. Check it out if you can in theaters, too. Say Why would you say that? What are you doing? You're just making it worse. Everybody, take a chill pull, okay? Just calm the fuck down. <clears throat> now, listen, yeah. We'd like to leave with our money, uh-huh. and I'm sure that you boys would like to leave with the weapons, uh-huh. okay? Mm-hmm. This is not good for business. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, bringing AR-70s to an M16 deal is not good for business. Neither is bringing a sex pest. It's under control, doll. I got this. The bird has a point, okay? We'd like to trust you, uh-huh. but we can't because your boy has okay. been disrespectful. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Just give me a minute. All right, enough. Hey. You all right, Chris? He's doing the right thing. A24 is a it's a studio that, you know, like often kind of like through its through its funding, through its distribution, through its curatorial efforts, it like takes movies, the types of movies that are getting squeezed out of the theatrical experience and sort of like pushes them into theaters, like asserts, and oftentimes they'll get hits. You know, they had Ex Machina as a hit. They had one of our favorite movies from last year, Green Room, really pushed it as a genre film that just sort of deserved to be in as many theaters as possible. And that experiment, as as sort of well-regarded as that movie is, is kind of similar to the James Gray thing where critics sort of like had an outpouring of affection for green room, you and I included, and it just didn't put up the numbers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, that's a movie that was like such a visceral shock in, in the theater. And it's just like, there's nothing that will compare to that. There won't, there's nothing that'll compare to hearing the gasps in the dark when you're watching that movie for the first time and the sort of electric jolt of that film. And so a24 as like a, as a company as like a, a sort of brand as disgusting as that term is but like they they know what's important to them what's vital what's like crucial to the art and they will stick to it and it's like there's only but there unfortunately there's only so long you can stick to it if the, if the numbers aren't getting up there you know and so they're gambling once again with the new film by Ben Wheatley Free Fire that's opening wide 
this Friday. I'm not right. I'm not getting it first. You're getting it at the same time as I am. It's opening <laughs> all over the country. And um it's a it's a seventies it takes place in the seventies and uh it's a sort of hodgepodge of this like cast of like misfits that are all congregating in this barren, disgusting jaundice warehouse to uh do an, an arms deal that goes awry relatively quickly and what would be just a sort of like dark, fast, manic scene in another movie is played out over the course of 90 minutes as the entire movie, which is a sort of like brutally goofy shootout scene for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, this is a movie that like, you know, will play played festivals did well in the sort of like midnight movie crowd and like knows how to play an audience knows how to sort of elicit the thrills and like more and more of these types of movies seem like that's their shot. That's their window is to get into the festivals, get enough of a buzz going with the sort of like edgy, fantastic fest, Toronto midnight crowd. And then they'll get a, a, a they'll gasp in the theaters, hopefully take a hold but really they're going to exist streaming and beyond. And it's like the, the more filmmakers like Ben Wheatley from the sort of like generation of people who are taking on genre and sort of like doing new things with the form. Like, I don't want it to be just like a given that Jeremy Saunier and like Macon Blair are just like, yeah, yeah, they just, they just go to Netflix now. Like I don't want to be already pre-decided. And so like, here we are. We're on the cusp of like probably Ben Wheatley's most ambitious movie. I mean, High Rise was incredibly ambitious last year. Mm-hmm. Just of scope, a novel that's difficult to adapt, and just like a, a, a sort of like visual language that was incredibly intricate. But this movie is just like all out fun, mm-hmm. and this is like the first time he's really taken that on as like a thrill ride. So, um, so yeah, Eric, tell me, tell me what you feel about this movie. Yeah. Good, good lead in my friend. Good, good opening. It's that, that was what I took the most away from free fire is I had a blast, but it's kind of forgettable in a, in a way that like really good, uh, ice cream or like, you know, good candy or good fast food, you know, can, can be really enjoyable, but it's not necessarily going to, you're not going to have long conversations about free fire coming out of the theater. It's just like, ah, that was fun. Like to go to the theater, have the experience of, can he pull off a 90 minute gunfight or, you know, essentially a 60 minute, 70 minute gunfight. And I'd say for the most part, Ben Wheatley does, he pulls off this. Yeah. Yeah. This exercise of, um, I think the, the thing that the movie occasionally falls into, but always finds a way out is the repetitive, uh, the repetitive nature of a movie like this. Like there's only so much you can do, but he finds enough angles, especially by the time the like last 30 minutes, when the climax is starting to kind of come together, it becomes more inventive and it wakes you back up, or at least it did for me. And some of the funniest, uh, most thrilling moments. And I'd say definitely for me, the most inventive moment in the movie has to do with uh, a van slowly driving around this warehouse uh, while a few characters just fight in this very slowly moving van. It was like this thrilling, hilarious, very slow moving action moment that um, I had, to, I almost wanted to applaud after it was over. Um, so yeah, I like it, you know, at, just to, to get it rolling. Free fire was a lot of fun for me, you know, it's slight, but a lot of fun. 
Yeah, it's I definitely uh, like I feel like when it hits that stride in the sort of point you're talking about in the movie and like the sort of last 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, it it reaches this crescendo that's so grotesque that like uh, that the, there's something like almost Verhovian in its like in, in its ambition. Whereas like the rest of the movie, it feel it felt like showy in a way that um, or winky in a way that I feel like Ben Wheatley never has been. And I felt like it was kind of doing a disservice to his strengths. And I think that that's where like as the movie attempts to be more kind of like fun and freewheeling and more of like a three thrill ride, like it doesn't sort of hold true to like he and Amy jumps voice who she co-wrote this and many of his, most of his movies. Most, with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like the, I think their strength is like, there isn't a sense of like winking, like the, usually you don't let the characters outfit speak for them, but there was just stuff like that that felt kind of more borrowed from stuff that is sort of less interesting to me Mm -hmm. at at its lowest moments and, or not at its lowest moments, but at its most slight and kind of like dismissible, it felt like a Guy Ritchie movie. I know Quentin Tarantino is the go-to kind of like reference point because it involves people in an enclosed space pointing guns at each other. It had this sort of like pop and flashiness of a of a Guy Ritchie movie who himself is indebted to Quentin Tarantino and that whole era in the 90s. Um, But yeah, there just was something kind of like too. it was. It felt like it was referencing movies that were referencing the 70s as opposed to just like directly kind of like diving into the grit and the the squalor of like what the 70s would have been like there were moments where i kind of thought that the that element the period element paid off i'm not sure how like considering how like winky it was which serves as more of a distraction than anything else. I don't know how it paid off in the story, except that no one had cell phones, which is always a plus. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought a very similar thing where it really only felt like the period in the end was to just keep it contained as much as possible instead of cell phones would end this conflict most likely a lot sooner you would you'd yeah. imagine, or it would escalate it, I guess. And it's a way to keep it small uh, con- relatively low budgeted, I'm sure. And yeah, contained in this one space. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if the 70s thing offers much other than, and it did have a sort of cartoonish 70s quality to it. Like, I think that's what you're getting at. Like, it, instead yeah. of being gritty, like a lot of movies from that era look like, it. Um, I actually saw, I can't think of the critic on on my Facebook feed who who put a sort of pithy line out there about the movie. Didn't like the movie very much at all. Said yeah. and re- referenced how uh, oh it's you know nice to see the Max Fisher players like getting more work or something like that you know referencing how the movie <laughs> yeah. might fe- which I thought was kind of <laughs> it does have was... quality it does have this like playing crime movie kind yes. of vibe to it as opposed to like for, it took a while before the actual conflict sort of takes hold and the movie goes goes haywire. Um, it took a while to really adjust to the performance styles. Cause unfortunately a lot of people don't seem like they're acting in the same movie. Yes. 
And then, but once the conflict sort of gets underway, all of that calms down. And there's plenty of movies that like their strengths aren't necessarily in the performances. A good friend of mine and I were just talking about like RoboCop and how uh, the villains in RoboCop really are the best actors. And like my my friend Cloudy said, he was like, he's like really the worst performance in the movie is Peter Weller, who's the lead. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Like before he gets turned into RoboCop, he's kind of the like the sort of winciest kind of performance <laughs> and uh but like so with this it was sort of similar just that i other than like army hammer i was like oh he's he's solid he's good in this like he mm-hmm. sort of he he's more in tune with i think the the strongest points of the movie than like everybody else is and it's a great cast you know like uh, Cillian murphy uh charlotte copley and Ben Riley, I believe, is his name, who played Ian Curtis in the. Oh, Joy Sam Riley, yeah. Sam Riley, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like he, like I. Once I realized that was him, I was like, oh, I'm sad that I was kind of annoyed by him early on. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> he's the loud gum chewing guy for most of the <laughs> beginning of the movie, and I'm like, I just don't like that they have these like things that are ticks that end up just being more winks than they are sort of like actual grounded performances that's not the i mean that's not the movie they're making they're making a fun movie but like i think when the movie is at its strongest it's not just fun it's sort of like it becomes just like a ballet of grotesquerie you know like where everybody is crawling through dirt and grit <laughs> and debris and people are just mangled beyond repair and you're like looking at you know like I mean, I think the the movie it set in the '70s does reflect how uh, fuck how futile like conflict can become. You know, mm-hmm. where it's just nobody. Know, there's infighting in the groups, and like that's so that's so reflective of right now that it's just like everybody hates each other right now, and everybody's like <laughs> out to get each other. And so this movie, you know, like does play does does play sort of effectively on a sort of contemporary antagonism. You know. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot to like. I don't I don't even feel like this movie plays into that. We want more movies like this, but this one isn't very good. Like, I think it's I think it's good and I think it's a lot of mm-hmm. fun. Um, it's not it's not necessarily what I wanted Ben Wheatley to be working towards, because I think what unfortunately I think or fortunately or unfortunately, I think his strengths don't make him a crowd pleasing filmmaker. And it's just like, this is like the, the biggest sort of canvas he's had and the biggest opportunity he'll have in front of like as, as big of an audience as possible with the exception of, did he direct some doctor who episodes? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe something along those lines would be more separate, but like this, you know, playing in giant screens all over the place, you know, I just feel like, like I want him to get, get ugly just stay ugly (laughs) i I know yeah that's when i've gotten the most pleasure out of his work i mean sightseers a movie we both adored is is extremely funny and entertaining as hell and it just moves at a clip but there is a real demented uh (laughs) pleasure to be taken from the movie like you have to uh endure a lot of stuff that would be unpleasant where the tone completely different but it's um, he's always been such a good filmmaker at n- nailing the right tone for the material. 
Yeah. And Sightseers is one kill list, which is such a dark and brooding and just upsetting movie, but it works so well for those reasons. Yeah, um, yeah I think you make a good point. It, it, Free Fire is... Free Fire to me is something like this. This is like a panic room to what panic room was to David Fincher. It's an exercise and, mm-hmm. and it certainly shows that he can do that. He can make something a little bit more, you know, quote unquote crowd pleasing or just uh, less challenging to an audience to enjoy. And, and Free mm-hmm. Fire works in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it it's exciting in that it shows him in a completely different register than High Rise. But um, it's it is weird too because it's like he makes movies so quickly he he produces really really quickly and he's um, I believe his next film is going to be this one freak shift he's been talking a lot about sounds like it could be a lot of fun but it also sounds like another you know left turn and like he's trying to he he does seem like he has a very distinct style already and he has since his first film with Down Terrace but like he's trying to do different things with every project and uh you know that that's exciting but uh yeah i guess you just he keeps you on your toes as a moviegoer yeah there and there's not a lot of people like that anymore there's not there mm-hmm. you know the we've got the steven soderbergs who's pretty much transitioned into television you've got the david gordon greens the, these people who do take on genres and they they while still maintaining like a certain narrative clarity, like in a certain like authorial quality, you know, yeah. like throughout their work where it's like, you can see their kind of touch on everything they do. And so, yeah, I'm, I don't worry. I'm, I'm going to keep following Ben Wheatley. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm not worried. Uh, you mentioned the cast. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't fail to mention uh, Brie Larson as, as the sole female in, in the room of, of all yeah. these guys in this movie. And, um, I think we've championed her before. She's such a great actress and always such a strong presence. I do feel like she was a little bit wasted in this movie. Um, I mean, she's great in what she brings to it, but I do feel like there were times in the movie where I, I lost track of her more than other characters. And I found that a little bit strange. Like um, it does have a certain payoff quality to it in the end, but uh, I I would have liked to have seen more uh, for her to do, I guess. But you know, it is a simple it's a very stripped down, simple movie. So there's only going to be so much time for stuff like that. And character dynamics, character work is not what this movie's interested in. And it leads me to the, the kind of final point I wanted to bring up about it is, um, you know, like it's another example of a certain type of action movie. Uh, they're more like exercises in like how much you can take away and just mm-hmm. reduce it to its basics. Uh, you know, the the first raid movie felt like that. I uh, when we talked about Mad Max Fury Road, uh, I, I cited that as well, where it's like these very like they just want to strip as much out of normal narrative character stuff in movies and just only put in action, action, action and just see if that can sustain a movie. And um, I'm excited about those kind of movies because I think they're hard to pull off and they often result in directors really getting to go kind of you know, crazy with style and their ambition and they can play around and it can be very fun and enjoyable. And I, I free fire definitely, you know, like we've said qualifies as that it is fun, but, um, you know, I, I, again, like what's the next thing where it's like, <laughs> what is, is it going to be a 90 minute knife fight for, for the next movie for some director that they're going to see if they can pull this off? Like, I, I don't know where it ends, but I'm still excited by this, this, you know, niche small trend for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a high wire act, and it's like a, it's almost like a cinematic dare, where it's like, can can it sustain itself for this long? And like, that's what I was excited going into this one was, you know, finding out like the twists and turns of like how how does this how does this scenario keep itself invigorated and sort of alive throughout, you know? And it, and like we said, it mostly pulls it off, but it's also like that's 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 a high wire act that like really should be left to professionals and like the, the, the more people take it on and the, the list sort of like, it's just like, let, let's have a whole movie set at an ATM. No, 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 let's not, <laughs> no, we don't need to do that. You know, buried was hard enough. Let's not have every movie set within a incredibly claustrophobic setting. Just, just to see if you can pull it off. You know, I don't, I don't know. Like it's that, that's just like that. That's another kind of, gimmick that i think is is the selling point and i understand you know just because you need you need a high concept pitch anymore to rise above the din of too much content but uh it's also it's as exciting as it is to you it's also depressing to me (laughs) (laughs) there you go you get the whole spectrum on ayt there you go so i don't know when i started using the term the art life but one of the things Bushnell did, besides uh, just being a, a painter and living living a life as a painter, he gave me the Robert Henri's book, The Art Spirit. And I loved that book. I can't remember much of it now, but I we used to carry it around. And, and, and it, the art spirit sort of became the art life. And I had this idea that you drink coffee, you smoke cigarettes, and you paint, and that's it. Maybe, maybe girls come into it a little bit, but basically it's the incredible happiness of working and living that life. We're, we're gonna now take a, take a sort of look at a, a specific film, but like a, a sort of broader look at the filmmaker that the the film is focusing on. And he's somebody, I thought about this uh, last night when we, I was doing some, you know, like some, some re- refreshing on him. Uh, this, mm. the subject is David Lynch. Um, and the, the documentary <laughs> that's coming out about him uh, is called uh, David Lynch, the art life. He, I mean, he's somebody that this was like over 30 years ago at this point, but it's like the the sort of natural trajectory that we're looking at now of like people making an impact with a relatively independent film, something unique that they're making. They then get to transition, hopefully for like a lot of people into making franchise films. And so that's something that David Lynch was approached with after his first two uh, feature length movies were made. Uh, he got, there was the possibility on the table. I don't know how, how far along it got, but he was maybe going to make a star Wars movie. He was going to make yeah. return of the Jedi. <laughs> and instead he made Dune, which was a gigantic, like that, that had the potential of being like w- whatever it is of the, what, I don't know what the modern day equivalent of Dune, the fiasco that Dune became, mm. what the modern day equivalent of it was Jupiter ascending. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But, I mean, but the book, the source material for Dune is so like, beloved, especially since that the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune came out about Alejandro Jodorowsky trying to make Dune. But like, that's not it's not at all comparable to whatever 
fiascos come out now. But um, so he he's somebody that's just always traveled in his own lane to the point of becoming almost a cult of personality at this, you know, like because his last movie in the Empire came out 10 years ago and yeah. he really hasn't been. I mean, he had gaps between his films. You know, they're usually like four four more years between them, like, you know, sort of later into his career. And uh, so, like, he's become less of a, a sort of filmmaking personality and more of just a, a cult of personality where people are, like, people are constantly referring to things as Lynchian and they just, they they love him. He's such a beloved personality. And this documentary only reinforces that because, like, <laughs> I myself am just like, all right, en- like, enough. Like, we're just, like, celebrating how great he is when it's just like i hated his last movie and then like just seeing the purity of his approach the sort of just like hilarious nature of just listening to him talk and how like what a genuine human being he is you know he's just like so authentically himself yeah and that he that he's able to tap into something that like he's one of the go-to people where people are just like I this fix that I need that I don't know how to assign specifics to. I know that he gives me that. He gives me this dreamlike, surrealistic, inexplicable quality that like he's like a shaman in that way. And like that's why people return to him. That's why people rip him off constantly. And yeah, this documentary is one of like a a few about him, but I think it's the best one about him. For one, I was pretty amazed by what they got out of him in this film. Uh, he, he's notoriously a a very funny interview, but not really into talking about process or definitely he refuses basically to answer what his movies mean, which I've always, uh, really adored by him because as much as I'd love him to explain stuff, he probably can't explain what he's doing usually his answer is i just get ideas and yeah (laughs) they just kind of find their way into his movies and that is might be as good an explanation as you're going to get as to why his films are the way they are um and for me why sometimes they work really greatly and sometimes they don't but uh yeah this documentary is um really really funny uh it, it definitely solidifies more in my mind like how much I could just listen to him talk, you know, he can like, I didn't realize how funny it would be to see him working. Like a lot of this movie is him uh, working in his LA studio and just sort of painting or can, you know, building things. And I just, I could watch David Lynch swearing at his paintings for hours, you know, just like him being like, ah, shit. Like I can't, he's trying to drill something in this movie, some letters, some text onto a canvas and just him smoking a cigarette, just like swearing fucker at one point <laughs> totally yeah and i'm just cracking up and uh so yeah it's it's it was a much more uh pleasurable fun experience than i would have expected and while it really tends to focus on the his youth and then growing up and maybe where some of his ideas that ended up in his movies could have come from there's certainly some right. stories he tells that kind of a light bulb will go off in your head if you're familiar with his work, but also get you through to his shorts and then into a racer head. And that's it. It just, that's it. I'd love to 
have more of this where he gets into the rest of his career would be great. And maybe there'll be more chapters of something like this where we get more uh, from him. I would certainly welcome that based on, on the art life alone, which, which yeah, is like a good reminder of like why I still consider him such a vital filmmaker. I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Twin Peaks. Uh, I've only seen the first season, admittedly, of the show, and I thought, you know, I, I thought there was some things that I really that were really good about it, but it's not for me top tier Lynch. But uh, you know, I get why so many people are excited for that show to come back, and I'll certainly be checking it out. So, um, yeah, as a reminder, if nothing else, of why David Lynch is is important, uh, this documentary is is definitely uh, worth checking out. Well, I think that. Also, like he, his style has been so heavily replicated and is almost like the beats of a lot of his, uh, his films and especially like his kind of later films through the nineties, they, they're almost like continued in a lot of like alt comedy. I feel like we've talked about this before, but like the, the, so the, the, the beats of scenes in like lost highway where, uh, Bill Pullman encounters the mystery man at the party and he's like, mm. I'm at your house right now. Like it's played so nightmarishly straight and deadpan that the beats are almost what like dark comedies have like come to be later on. Like you see it in like Tim and Eric's bedtime stories type stuff. And it's just like mm-hmm. Lynch has been echoed so many times that it's like, it might be hard to, to sort of, deal with your legacy as you're, you know, like as you continue as a filmmaker, especially somebody who not even as a filmmaker, but he's like an incredibly intuitive artist and somebody who dreams are so vital to him as like a, a, a sort of like so, source of like opening everything up. There's a point in the documentary, which like I think beautifully focuses on his paintings while he's kind of like threading these stories about where his perspective came from and where his sort of artistic life came to be. Mm-hmm. And he like just straight up abandons a story because he doesn't know how to, he probably doesn't know how to go into how powerful it is to him or he just straight up can't tell the story. He's like, I can't, I can't do this. Like he just <laughs> it stops and he gives you enough of the picture of it starting to be like, well, Oh my God, what happened? Was it too traumatic to go into? Or like, is it just that the power would be drained from it if he gave you all the details, which like, I think that's something that he holds dear as well is that like explaining something, the, the light goes out. Like if that's, that's the end of it, that's the death of it. There's nothing. He's said that over and over in sort of Q and A's where he's like, if I explain it, you'll stop asking yourself and the light goes out. And like, I think that's a quality that like, you know, watching this documentary, he's, he's con he's constantly creating. It's easy to forget that like, you know, since the the last movie he made was 10 years ago, you know, it's just like, well, what's he doing? Is he just meditating? It's just like, no, he's, he started as a painter and that's never stopped. And like, he's just, he's a constant sort of like inquisitive, immersive, like personality. And like, I don't know. I think those documentaries are sometimes like, just documentaries about artists are just, you know, too dry, but like this, mm-hmm. this manages to be artful in its own regard. You know, it, it manages to be a strong sort of like potent work on its own and then sort of like effectively reflects how interesting and compelling he is. Yeah, totally. And while I would have loved, um, as I kind of was 
echoing earlier, like I would have loved the maybe something along the lines of like last year's De Palma, the where it just sort of breezes you through everything he's ever done, his filmography, and like it it made me it turned me on to wanting to revisit and watch for the first time a lot of his stuff. Um, this one is much more contained and it's focused and. It, they certainly could do more if they wanted to, you know, if there's yeah. any reason to do a sequel, that would be great and go through more of that work and keep the style going. But this one is definitely more, yeah, it's more of an artfully made movie as well. Whereas uh, as much as I enjoyed De Palma, it is just, you know, him straightforward with clips, you know, of his movies. And um, it just seems like there's a lot more uh, artistically and thematically going on in the art life that, uh, that I appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, Again, as a storyteller, he's he's just he cracks me up. There's the thing we we were going back and forth off mic or uh, texting about it, like just some of the funny moments in this documentary where he talks about like smoking a joint for the first time and kind of, like tells a story that like it it's something you've seen in a bad stoner comedy where like some he just tells a story about pulling over on the highway like he he got obsessively uh, he, he obsessively started staring at the middle line and just realized hadn't realized until his friend pointed out that he was stopped in the middle of a highway just like staring yeah. away and i love how the way he tells it it feels like a fresh story but it's really yeah. it's like an experience you hear about or like i said bad stoner comedies will will do stuff like that um but the highlight has to be when he talks about going to a Bob Dylan concert and, and walking out on it and just basically being like, get the fuck out of my way to his friends who are like, you don't walk out on Dylan. And, uh, he, for him to just be like, I walk out on Dylan was, um, was hilarious, man. Like, uh, definitely was laughing out loud, uh, a lot more than I expected to be when I started this movie. So, yeah. And it seems like, I think it's, you know, and in, in, in addition to all types of movies being tough sells for people to go see in the theater, yeah, the, this, this seems like, you know, a documentary about a filmmaker. Like if you don't have the kind of like retrospective to go hand in hand with it, to offer like a package deal, which I know like a lot of places are with this movie, like mm-hmm. family is showing it and they're, they're, uh, they're showing a 35 millimeter print of a racer head, um, nice. alongside it programming some of his short films but like the you know, documentary age people are like now oh, wait i'll wait for netflix and it's just like that's that's fine but it's like there is there is something like i've gotten to see his paintings in person like i went i went and saw one of his art openings here in los angeles and like seeing it gives you a, a perspective on the art that the sort of the more massive the better because it's just like it gets you so intimately involved with his worldview that it's like, if you value him as a filmmaker, like you're going to, you're going to love seeing this in the theater. Yeah, no, totally. Is, uh, is there anything of late that you've caught up with? I know, I know there are a few titles you've seen recently, but anything of his that you've revisited that, uh, you know, struck you positively or negatively in any way? Yeah. I I started rewatching, uh, Mulholland drive and, uh, nice. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's my favorite. I, that's my favorite, man. Oh, that's good. Because I think that it's like, I think it's like, it feels like his biggest movie. Like it just it feels like probably like the biggest budget. And I feel like it, he was exploring a set of ideas in Lost Highway, which upon revisiting, like that's a great movie. And then the sort of like the, the, 
the schism and the the shifting of identities and like parallel identities that he kind of like goes into in Lost Highway, revisits a Mulholland Drive, I think really crystallizes and becomes yeah. like super, super immersive and fascinating in Mulholland Drive. And it's also like, uh, it's, it's such a funny film, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so like it's such a effectively darkly comedic film and then i don't know like i i I sort of have like a southland tales type relationship with the inland empire like it was so like the my experience was so negative on first viewing Mm -hmm. and he's such a specific filmmaker that like there's almost like an the onus is on you like it's like well i mean come come on you gotta you gotta watch it two or three times before anything really starts to happen you're like Huh? I know it's three hours. It's already three hours. Like I don't have that kind of time. And I remember looking at my watch halfway through watching it. I think the first and only time. Maybe I've seen it twice, but like the definitely the first time I saw it at Cinema Twenty One, Eric. And like Ooh. I was just, oh shit, there's a whole other hour and a half to go. <laughs> and like so, I feel like Mulholland Drive is like it. It. it he reached a peak with something that he was very fascinated with and then sort of like slogged into kind of the, the outtakes of all of those concepts. And like, it's a movie that shot kind of, uh, unflatteringly on digital video. Yeah. And he had always used film, loved film now loves the freedom of digital video, but it's like, film gave him limitations which sometimes as we mentioned with donnie darko like sometimes mm. you need some limits you know you need some like parameters you need some things to just like he doesn't have an infinite amount of space so he has to tell a story even though his story is going to be nightmarish occasionally not make any sense but be delightfully kind of surrealistic and upsetting like there still needs to be a sort of like uh, focused story to it. And like, I think that's what the limitations of the film gave him. And yeah. now with DV, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it's a good way to describe Inland Empire because it feels like all of the outtakes are offshoots of ideas that he had already explored in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, which I agree. I think he really perfected it with that one. And the ease with which you could just keep shooting and going crazy with digital, um, it's it's I guess it's sort of appropriate in its indulgent indulgences where it's just so long that like it's just him playing around with that. But yeah, that's that I've only seen Inland Empire once, and I I didn't see it in the theater. Uh, I wish I could have, I guess, but uh, yeah, it would have been trying for me as well, and it, and it was. Um, but it's a movie I've been meaning to give another shot at, uh, much like lost highway. Uh, I, I haven't seen that lately. I've been wanting to though. Uh, the one I revisit. Yeah. Yeah. You saying that, that, that makes, I, I do remember like being deeply troubled and scared at certain scenes, like the Robert Blake scene where he's telling him he's in yeah. his house. Like that is genuinely terrifying. And like most of his movies, there's always at least a scene, if not more, that is like as good as any scary scene you're going to see in any horror movie. Right. Um, I, I always cite the, you know, the obvious one in Mulholland drive is the, the creepy, like homeless person out behind the trash can. Yeah. The diner scene. 
Oh my God. It's it, it's for me. It's like my, it's the scariest scene in any movie I can think of. It just like the way it builds and, 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 and just delivers on it is really well done. But um, the one I revisited recently was beyond some of his short films, uh, which are on the eraser head criteri- criterion Blu-ray. So I was like able to watch a bunch of those um, is uh, I had never seen twin peaks Firewalk with me. And I, I don't think it's like, it's not my favorite Lynch movie, but there are certainly a lot of moments that, uh, especially a lot of scary moments in that one that worked almost just as single sequences. And it didn't matter that I wasn't completely familiar with, uh, the entirety of the show, but, uh, I kind of could just enjoy it as like offshoots of, of other Lynchian ideas and not get hung up on. Yeah. What it, what it's given me in terms of being a prequel to the show. Um, I just more, uh, was able to take in and for the most part, enjoy uh, just the, it's a crazy movie, Twin Peaks, uh, Firewalk with me. Um, and again, it's, it's mind blowing that he even made that show on a network television, uh, channel in the early nineties. Like that's the thing about Twin Peaks. That's so impressive. Is like, how did David Lynch, like, how did that ever happen? Like, I don't think that would happen today, but it did in the nineties, which is, which is crazy. So, yeah. Uh, well, there was just like an interesting kind of like ride to a lot of his career that like Eraserhead got him cachet, Ele- like El- that got him Elephant Man, Elephant Man got him an Oscar and he didn't yeah. win anything, which he later was nominated again for Mulholland Drive. But so it just opened up this opportunity. Dune, Dune fell apart. Uh, he does Blue Velvet, which sort of reestablishes him. And that was like enough of like a, a smash critically. And like with a, a cult following at the box office, that it's more cachet to just like, all right, do we? Clearly, we don't know what works about you because he's such a hard <laughs> to pinpoint, like the sort of magic formula of what he does. Yeah. So it's just like those periods where money people, decision makers, don't know how the appeal of someone works is such a fucking magic time to just be like, all right, do what you want. You know, and of course they're going to have say and there's going to be compromises. And I think that's ultimately what David Lynch like kind of like butts his head up against is like there's a lot of limitations when you're dealing with that many people, that many people investing in your stuff, that many people that are kind of like relying on you to run the show, that there's probably just a, a tremendous amount of freedom in painting, which is what he started to do. Cause it's just him. It's just him. Yeah. It's just his canvas. It's just his materials. And so like, that's, that's another kind of fascinating thing about this particular doc. Well, why don't we uh, wrap up episode 145 of adjust your tracking? Uh, as usual, we are part of the playlist podcast network. You can find our, all our latest episodes and those of our other shows on the playlist.net. We got the podcast tab at the top of the page. Uh, if you wanted to email us, you could find us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. We're on, uh, we're on Facebook as well and Twitter. Uh, what is it again, Joe? We haven't done this in a while. At adjustyourtrack. Follow us. We'll follow you back. Probably not put too many tweets out there. <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, Twitter has just become oh, – your least favorite people are also on Twitter. So <laughs> it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough mall to be in at the moment. It is. It is indeed. Well – um, it's not tough sitting here talking with you about movies, Joe. So, uh, I want to thank you for coming on this one. Thanks, Eric. Thanks.